0: Father we've come together this morning to worship you we stand in awe of you the creator of our universe and all mankind who came to redeem us Lord as we come and we pray to you we recognize two major things that you have asked of us first of all us to recognize that you are the eternal God and King of the universe and that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us and then that you died, desired a relationship with us it's as if you asked us to crawl up into your lap the lap of our Abba, our father and to share all of our concerns with him and then allow him to in our ears through his spirit. So we come before you as a needy people. We have many within our midst and watching us by video. And those in our body that are doing neither because they're too sick. We lift up their needs to the great physician and pray that you would be with them. That you would heal them. We pray for those that are in the final days of life that you would bring them peace. We pray for those who've lost loved ones that you would bring them comfort. We pray for our city because it needs Jesus. We pray for our families that don't know you because they need Jesus we pray for ourselves Lord that we would be faithful in sitting down and talking with you and allowing your spirit to talk to us to open your word to watch your and and read your words and put them inside of our hearts so that we don't sin against you and Lord in that regard we recognize that The disciples came to your son, Jesus, and said, how do we pray? And so he gave them a model prayer. And I pray today that you would join me in lifting those words up to our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us these days our daily bread lord we thank you we pray that people looking through us will see jesus it's in his name that we pray amen
1: Good morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That is um, preschool through three years old through the fifth grade. And um, as they're making their way out, I actually um, want to address the parents on uh, an issue. We are going to be making some changes to kids' ministry in the weeks ahead, and for a very good reason. That is that we've kind of outgrown our current class structure. Some of our classes are a little bit tight right now. Some of our classrooms are tight. And so uh, beginning the week after Easter, we are going to be adding another classroom upstairs to our kids' ministry time. That's a really good problem to have. It's a really good change to make. It also means there's a need for some more volunteers And so, parents, we we need your help on a couple of things. Number one, uh, we want to see consistency from our our kids in the building and in um, kids' worship. We want your kids here as we start to restructure our classes. The more consistent we see we have, the better those class dynamics will be. But also, we do need a couple more volunteers, particularly in the younger ages, in the nursery ages. So, if God is asking you to be more involved and to serve in another way, I recognize... Everybody's serving somewhere, and that's a really, really good thing. But if you feel a call to help with young people in the church, we do need some more help. Talk to Rico about that. It is Holy Week, Easter week. Today is Palm Sunday, and we have the few days ahead of us to celebrate and worship with a little bit of extra um, emphasis, being that this is such a significant week within the year that we remember, we celebrate, and we worship. So we want to encourage you on the different Easter events. There's a a flyer that you should have received as you came in. Along with the regular bulletin, there's a special Easter flyer that makes note of some extra things we have going on next weekend as we celebrate the Good Friday Easter resurrection season together. First, our Good Friday service will be Friday night, 6 o'clock, here. It will be a, a fairly short service. We'll have a communion service here um, that evening. It will be less than an hour, including some, some worship, some time in the Word, and communion service. So please join us Friday night for that. Saturday, in the gym, we're going to have a, um, a Seder observance. That's not a dinner, but only the traditional elements of the Passover Seder meal. The focus of that will be on how this Old Covenant practice where the people of God in the Old Testament through the Old Covenant would remember God's sacrifice and God's provision of rescuing his people out of the nation, um, out of slavery in Egypt. And as we observe that, we're going to see how that message pointed to Christ even back in the book of Exodus when we see God deliver his people from Egypt. That is 7 o'clock on Saturday. We would like you to register for that. Don't, uh, don't worry about registering for Friday night, for Good Friday, but on the Church Center app, you can register for Saturday night, the Seder um, Supper. And then for uh, on the back there, um, on the back table in this room, there is a sign-up sheet as well. And so register for the Seder observance on Saturday. Um, Please do that. We'd love to have your kids here as well. It is a family thing. There's not going to be a separate kids ministry that evening. If you come as a family, and I'd encourage you to come as a young family, uh, we did this with our three kids last year. It's really fun to sit down and to learn about the elements together. So that is Saturday evening. And then Sunday morning, we have two services. Uh, One, normal, 1030, normal worship service here. Easter choir will be leading us in worship that morning. But before that, at sunrise at 645 on the campus of Grace Presbyterian Church, which is that way and around the corner, we're going to have a joint sunrise service with Grace Presbyterian, with Doug Gap Baptist, and ourselves, three churches coming together, shared responsibility between the leadership of the three churches as we uh, get up early on Easter, see the sun rise up over the hill, and celebrate the risen Savior together. If you come to that, bring a lawn chair. Um, because we will be seating outside. It will be easier for you to, we'll have some chairs provided, but it will be better if you bring your own and we'll sit out in the field there um, by Grace's Pond and it'll be a really, really fun, enjoyable worship service. We did this last year. Some of you were with us. It was a great, great way to start out uh, Easter morning. So those four elements of Easter weekend, it's a little bit a little bit busier than normal, a little bit special, but it's a really, really good thing to take some extra time over Easter weekend to celebrate. Um, I'll add in tonight, though it is spring break, and you can tell if you look around, um, though this is the first week of spring break, we will have normal kids ministry and youth ministry this evening. So 5.30, kids ministry, youth ministry, and some of the life groups will are meeting this evening as well. Now, if you will, turn to me to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to look in the book of Proverbs this morning to pursue wisdom together, to see what God has to say to us. But first, one more thing that I want to um, talk to you about this morning. Um, I, like many of you, um, watched the news coverage this week, saw the events of Monday in Nashville, and the latest school shooting, which has a way anytime things like this happen, particularly in a school or in a church. There's a feeling of insecurity, a feeling of fear, uh, questions that we ask, and I'll, I'll simply say it's normal to ask those questions. I received calls this week of thinking through questions as basic as what is our church doing to make sure that we're safe as we worship, to deeper theological questions of why would God allow tragedies like this to happen in a, in a Christian school, um, young, young children, What is God doing? Why why would God allow evil to reign like this? And I think it's helpful in a season like this to sit in Proverbs, to wait in Proverbs, and to look at what Proverbs gives, gives us about wisdom and life. Because Proverbs is an exceptionally practical book. It's also an exceptionally real book. I told you a few weeks ago that one definition of wisdom is a life lived with boldness despite life's inevitable difficulties. We look at the, at the events of Nashville on Monday and we say words like inevitable difficulties are simply not strong enough. It's great pain, great trauma and crisis. Tragedies that don't make sense. Human sin that comes to bear in violence in great hardship experienced by individual families and experienced by whole communities. There's something about a Christian school and a Christian context, the same way as it would be with a church, that makes it feel a little bit closer, makes it feel a little bit more connected to us. It doesn't mean that we are less concerned about, about lives and other tragic events, but it does mean that when it's geographically closer and when it's contextually closer by being in a conservative Christian setting... It feels different. And Proverbs comes to us. In these words of wisdom, God is sharing with us. You can trust me. God is sharing with us. There is safety here. There is security in the way of following Christ. There is peace here. And it is moments like this, Where the tragedy seems so strong that it just does not make sense. That we need Christ the most. That we need the feeling of peace that surpasses all understanding. That we need the security that can only come from Christ. That we need to know what the path of wisdom looks like. Because if we're honest with each other, we do not, despite all of our best efforts we do not have the answers in our own resources. We do not have the answers in our own strength and in our own wisdom. The only answers to a life of such pain and such tragedy is Christ's wisdom. So on the practical questions, yes, our church does have a plan. Yes, our church does have Uh, A security team and a safety team. A safety team thinks on the policy level, comes up with plans. A security team implements it each Sunday. You'll be hearing more on a Sunday morning in a few weeks about what that plan is and what, what sort of mechanisms we have in place to make sure we worship safely. Those practical things are good. But beyond that, the question of surviving life in a world of trauma and pain is a question that cannot be answered by human effort. We we cannot find the solutions and find the way forward by just making better decisions and forcing everybody around us to make better decisions because the sinful world in which we live in means that crisis will happen. Tragedy will strike. Suffering will occur, and suffering will acutely affect sons and daughters of God the Father. And so in moments like that, we lean into Christ, we lean into trust, and, of course, we lean into prayer. So we're going to take a minute to stop and pray for the community of Nashville, for the community of Covenant School, Covenant Presbyterian Church, as they gather and worship today on the same campus where the shooting was on Monday. And then we'll jump into Proverbs 3 together. Father, I praise you that we do not trust in our own efforts or in our own strength. And therefore, when we do not have answers to the difficult questions of our day, we have assurance. And Father, eternal assurance is much stronger and much greater than those effective answers of our day. And so God, I pray that in this room we would be known for eternal assurance that we would seek to live wisely and practically faithfully in this challenging world in which we live in this world full of of heinous sin father give your people the wisdom and grace to walk in steadfast love and faithfulness and father when we do not have the answers teach us to trust pray for the community of nashville the area of green hills Covenant School and Covenant Presbyterian Church. Father, I pray your grace. I pray your presence. I pray that the, the peace that surpasses all understanding would guard hearts and minds in Christ Jesus this morning. I pray comfort for those who have lost. I pray healing for hearts that are broken. I pray that this school, that the leadership of the school would walk in wisdom to find the path forward to educate these children faithfully and to serve them spiritually for the church Father I pray that as they gather to worship even now that God it would be a a service full of your grace, full of your strength and full of your presence. May the cross of Christ be the focus because Father we have no hope in this life, without the cross of Christ, without the protection that can only come from Jesus. So in the feelings of great insecurity in this life, Father, we pray that you would bring us to a place of safety and security in your arms, in your eternal rest. And as we open up our scriptures today to see how you call us to trust, Father, may you secure us in that trust. As we trust you, may we rest in the peace of your presence. Now speak through your word. Give us grace as we pursue you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll open to Proverbs chapter 3, and we'll focus on learning how to trust in circumstances that are difficult and in circumstances that are beautiful. In both settings, in the extremes of life, going from seasons of great health and wealth to seasons of great pain and shame. In the extremes of life, we seek to trust God and trust Him at a deeper level. And so we'll go through this in 12 verses of chapter 3 in three major sections. We will see the peace that God gives, the trust that God requires, and then the discipline that God brings when we inevitably lose our way along the path. The first, the first four verses will start there. "My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep your heart, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success. In the sight of God and man. So our first step here is the peace that God offers. I want you to look at verses 1 through 4. There, I hope you have it um, in, in your scriptures right in front of you. Because then you can, you can mark a couple things as, as we look at them. I want you to look at verse 1. My teaching and my commandments in verse 1. And then in verse 2, I want you to mark or underline Length of days and years of life. And then in verse 2, also underline peace. In verse 3, steadfast love, market, and faithfulness. In verse 4, mark favor and good success. See, in these four verses, there are four things to pursue. And then four benefits of that pursuit. The four things to pursue in verses 1 through 4 are my teaching, the teaching of God the Father, my commandments, and then in verse 3, steadfast love and faithfulness, four pursuits of the wise life, the teaching of God, verse 1, the commandments of God, verse 1, steadfast love and faithfulness, both in verse 3. And the four results, length of days, in verse 2, peace, in verse 2, favor, in verse 4, and good success in verse 4. So first, let's look at the teaching and commands of verse 1, and we'll, we'll ask ourselves, what is God telling us by telling us to not forget his teaching and let our hearts keep his commands? Well, we can say it this way, okay? Teaching and commands basically referring to the same thing, the teaching that God gives to his people. You see in verse 1, again, we have this this simple two-word introduction, my son. Because throughout Proverbs 1 through 9, this is what he's doing, okay? You have the author of Proverbs, Solomon, the author of this section, is writing a letter to his son, writing a practical training manual to his son, a discipleship guide, if you will. You have a father to a son throughout these nine chapters of Proverbs 1 through 9, telling him, my son, this is how you must pursue wisdom. This is how you live and find success in life. Now remember, these Proverbs, they're not promises. So it's not the father saying to the son, I promise you, if you do this, then this will result. But rather, the better word for Proverbs instead of promises is probabilities, which means in a general sense, Typically, the way life works, if you live life this way, then the result will most likely be this. There's a problem that comes in there, that there are exceptions to every rule. And every probability has a small minority of situations in which there are exceptions. But we cannot just, we, listen, brothers and sisters, this is, this is a plea to you. We cannot afford to only learn from experience. Because on the other end, in good and bad ways, experience has exceptions. And when we seek to learn by experience, sometimes we pursue disruptive, destructive behaviors, and we get out scot-free, and we're like, oh, that wasn't that bad. Even though the behavior was destructive, even though it was unwise, because we didn't experience immediate consequences, we think all's well that ends well. No, we do not need to learn from experience in that way, because sometimes you pick up bad habits. You develop a Superman syndrome in this sense of learning from experience, because you think, well, it could happen to somebody else, but it didn't happen to me. So I'll continue to pursue this destructive path. So this is the book of Proverbs, right? Pursuing wisdom and the life of Christ through the probability that life will end well if you pursue Christ and... and, and live faithfully and responsibly. There's a path. There's actually two paths. You choose one of two roads, either the road of wisdom or the road of wickedness. And this is what the road of wisdom looks like today. Pursue the teaching that comes from God. Pursue the commandments that come from God. Because as much as this is Solomon speaking, it is also the Spirit of God through Solomon speaking. So we're not simply here to follow Solomon's teaching or Solomon's commands. But we're here to follow God's definitions. God's definitions of right and wrong. God's definitions of sin, and God's definitions of moral righteousness. That's how we want to live our lives. We don't want to go through life aimlessly, hoping that we'll figure it out, and hoping that eventually we'll find the right place. Seeking out our own desires, seeking out every whim of pleasure that we might experience, hoping maybe one day we'll find the right way through it. No, we want to live with intentionality. Wisdom is boldness and intentionality, knowing that there is a way of honoring Christ with this life, and we're going to pursue it. When he says there, let your heart keep my commands, the word could just as easily be translated, guard my commands. Your heart is meant to guard against the disruptions that the heart may actually produce itself. It's been said that the heart is actually a factory, that the heart is a production facility, and the heart is a production facility for idols. That within every human heart, we have this great capacity to produce within ourselves these idols that are meant to satisfy us, that are meant to please us, that are meant to give some level of ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. And every single human heart is prone towards this same sickness. So it may look different for each of us. We may not make these wooden carvings and bow down to wooden carvings, which is what we think the definition of idol is. But in a far deeper, in a far more harmful sense, we may allow within our hearts... These, this production of idols that cause us to say, this is what I want most. This is what I need most. So when the scriptures tell us, guard your heart towards the obedience, the faithfulness of my commandments, he is saying, guard your heart against what your heart wants to do itself. And you think, well, I don't have that problem. I don't have idols. Then let me ask you this. What scenario... What situation in life are you yearning for to the extent that you say, if I only get to that point, then I will have arrived. If I can only get to this point out here, this destination, get over this next hill, then, then I can be happy. Then I can be at rest. Then I can be fulfilled. I've got to get through this trial, through this difficulty season, to get just over there. If you could say that, about any accomplishment, success, or new scenario in your life, then that's your idol right on the other side of that hill. That, that wage increase, that, that um, additional work responsibility, that additional notoriety, that additional family accomplishment, that additional uh, child accomplishment, the, 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 the new spouse, the, the new child, whatever it is, if you're thinking, if I can only get to that point, and maybe that point over there is, is retirement and the end goal is, is rest over there, if you're looking and searching for anything to find fulfillment and joy, then you might just have an idol that you're worshiping, that you're bowing down to, that you're yielding your life towards, that's just sitting right on the other edge of that hill. Because that is what's dominating your attention. That's what's dominating your energy. That's what you're thinking about in those low moments. How do I get to that point? If only I could get to that point. Then fulfillment. Then peace. And that's not freedom. Freedom is life in Christ. That is slavery. Slavery towards an idol. And if it is your career that you're seeking to arrive at your career, then you're enslaved for your career. You're working For the salvation that comes through the career. And if it's some family accomplishment. On the other side of that hill. Then you're enslaved towards that. And it's so easy. And every human heart does it. It's so easy to become enslaved. To our own desires. Our problem. Is not just. That our desires are misplaced. Oh that's a huge problem. Our our problem is that. Our misplaced desires. Lead us to false beliefs, and false doctrine, to think that if only I can fulfill this desire, then I'll have peace, then I'll have joy, then I'll have completeness, fulfillment. So when God says, keep my commands, he is saying, guard your heart against the deceptive power of itself to believe that something other than God can be at the center of your life and result in joy. The wise path says God is at the center and everything else I align in my life around that center who is God himself. The foolish life says I'm the center. What I want matters most. My identity that I self-discover, that's what matters most. That's the foolish path. That's the path towards destruction. But see, in verses 1 and 2, if you pursue the teaching that comes from God, the commands of God, that define sin, righteousness, that define the right path, wisdom, His ways, then the result will be length of days. That's a probability. But also peace. And this word is the, the Hebrew word shalom. One of the most powerful words, one of the most powerful gifts from God in all of the scriptures, His Shalom. When it gets translated into Greek, it it loses a bit of the power because the Hebrew concept of shalom was not just the absence of conflict. That's what we, we think of as peace. We think a peacemaker is somebody that ends the conflict. But the shalom of God, the peace of God, is not just the absence of conflict but also the presence of blessing and favor. That the peace that God brings is an eternal peace that results in favor in the holy kingdom, the holy and eternal kingdom of God, where you are his son, you are his daughter, and you are blessed as a part of the royal family. So you keep to God's commands. You guard your heart against the easy distractions, and the result will be peace. But the next pursuits in verse 3. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, when they are used together in the scriptures, rarely talk about us. But here, they kind of do. Usually, steadfast love and faithfulness are things that God says about himself. I'll prove it to you. Exodus 34, 6. You can turn there if you want, or I'll just read it quickly. The Lord passed before him. Moses And proclaim, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin who will by, by no means clear the guilty. That's who God is. God's definition of himself. Steadfast love. Love that will not end. Unconditional love. And faithfulness towards his people. That steadfast love and faithfulness it isn't, isn't a rival to his justice. In fact, in the same passage, Exodus 34, 6, it says both that God is just and by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished. He will punish the guilty. He will condemn people in their sins. But for those people who are his, through Jesus, we enter in and become his. Steadfast love and faithfulness continues, protects, and guides us So people try to center God around who they are and say, I'm in the center, I'm what matters most, and and I'm going to form my concept of of God around who I am and what matters most to me. That does not work. The scripture says, let the character of God, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness, let those be true of you. What would it look like if we as the church we were known most for our steadfast love and our faithfulness. What if that was the description that came to everybody's mind first when they thought of a Christian, when they thought of the church? Because that's who God says He is first and foremost steadfast love. When God begins to love somebody, He does not stop loving that person. Once you are saved and enter into Christ's kingdom, he will continue and protect you in that love. And he will never be unfaithful to his children. He will continue in his faithfulness even as we are unfaithful. And what if what we were known for most as a community was our steadfast love for God that resulted in love for others, love for our community, love for the lost, love for our neighbors as ourselves, because that's how love for God flows out. And faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to righteousness, faithfulness to serve God, faithfulness to serve others, and faithfulness to do the right thing even when all the world seems against the way of God. What will the result be? The result in verse 4 is if you pursue steadfast love and faithfulness, then the result is favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Let me tell you something, we don't believe that right now. We don't believe verses 3 and 4. We don't believe that if we're just faithful to what God has called us to, then the result will be favoring good success in the sight of God and man. It's that and man part that we don't actually believe. We think that in order to look good in the sight of man, we've got to kind of go the way of the world sometimes. Sometimes we've got to compromise on our beliefs. Sometimes we've got to just sort of play the game that the world plays. Or we think that if we are righteous and, and, and pursue God, then we're going to get persecuted. Listen, that's probably going to be true in some instances. Again, this is a probability, not a promise. So in some ways, if you pursue steadfast love and faithfulness, God will honor you no matter what. I can promise you that. But the probability is that even the watching world, even the heinous, sinful, violent world, will look at a life lived of faithfulness and love And be able to see that person believes what they, that person really does live out what they say they believe. That person really does live in love towards God and towards others. And some will look at it and, because of our convictions, look at us and say, but that person's also hateful because they don't think the way I want them to think. They define morality according to God's word and not according to the progressive standards. And so, what if that happens? Seriously, so what if that happens? If you find favor in God because you've lived your life of steadfast love and righteousness and you've served your community and you've loved your community and you've sacrificed yourself for your community, for your church, and for your God, who cares if some in the world will say, but he didn't live according to the progressive worldly cultural standards. He defined morality in an antiquated way. At the end of the day, you still have the favor of God. At the end of the day, you still have the eternal shalom of God. And if we would just try it, if we would just live with a little bit more love and a little bit more faithfulness, we might actually be surprised at how that big, scary world out there might respond to Christians who love well, to Christians who serve well, to Christians who live with such rabid faithfulness to God, that all you can see out of them is love for their fellow man, both the lost man and the saved man. This is what God tells us to pursue. He says, this is the peace that God gives. This is, remember, verses 1 and 4 are all about centering around this peace that God gives. And 1 through 4 tells us that if you're going to live under the peace of God, this is what God's asking you to do. Accept his commands as the truth. That means accept Christ and accept Christ as your righteousness. This is the gospel. Proverbs 3, 1 through 4, you might not see it readily there, but it's there. The only way to peace with God is by accepting his commands, recognizing that you are a sinner in light of his commands, and then, through steadfast love and faithfulness of God, receiving the gift sacrifice of Jesus to enter into the new life, and then, in response, honor him in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the path towards peace. Understanding God's commands that call you a sinner. Receiving the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of Jesus to receive new salvation. Receiving the gift of peace and then living in response to that beautiful truth. Verse 5 and following are about trust. This is how we continue to respond to the love of God and the peace of God. Verses 5 through 10. "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart. "'Do not lean on your own understanding.'" Probably the best-known verse in Proverbs. Memorize it. There's a reason it's well-known. "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart. "'Do not lean on your own understanding. "'In all your ways acknowledge him, "'and he will make straight your paths. "'Be not wise in your own eyes.'" Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, take your pen, highlighter, whatever you've got. I want you to mark a few action words in this passage. Trust, verse one. Lean, verse one. Acknowledge, verse six. Turn Away, verse 7. Honor, verse 9. That's the path. That's the action of the passage. We first trust, lean, and acknowledge in verses 5 and 6. We trust in the Lord. We do not lean on our own understanding, but we lean on Him. And we acknowledge Him in every way. Our confidence is not in our own moral decision-making, not in our own wisdom, not in our own education or experience. The way of the Christian, the trust is only in the word of God. The, the Christian lives his life like this, not with this bold confidence that says, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do and I have all the resources internally in myself, but rather with the bold confidence that it can only come from having a book that tells the truth in any and all circumstances. It doesn't give us the path in any and all circumstances. But in any and all circumstances that you open the word of God, it is going to tell you the truth about yourself and about your world. Does it tell you what job to take? Probably not. Does it tell you what woman to marry? Probably not. Does it tell you what decision to make practically within your career? Most likely no. But does it give instruction and guidelines and deep deep truth that can guide you in any of those decisions absolutely it does it gives you a framework where when you're a student of it and you're trusting in it and building your life with his word as the foundation you will start to see oh i understand how to stay on that path i understand that if i just take a few steps forward here's the problem that some of those first steps are really really hard i say you got you got two paths right you got the path towards wisdom and you got the path towards wickedness. It's way easier to walk this way. In fact, you don't have to walk this way. You just sort of float this way. We drift towards wickedness. You don't drift towards wisdom. You don't drift towards righteousness. You walk intentionally with bold intentionality built on the word of God, trusting in Christ our wisdom, we walk intentionally in a specific direction towards steadfast love, towards faithfulness, towards honoring Christ with our lives. That's the road of wisdom. And along the way, we're going to face all sorts of micro decisions, right? And any of those micro decisions will very, very quickly lead us back to that path of wisdom. The road through the woods from the path of wisdom to the path of wickedness is really easy. But the road from the path of wickedness back to the road of wisdom, again, it's hard. It's harder to walk that way. And it's really easy to drift that way. And this is where the scriptures guide us. This is where uh, just allowing ourselves to soak in the scripture and to trust in our Lord will give us the guidance we need. Uh, here, here's what it looks like. If wisdom is a life lived with boldness in light of life's inevitable difficulties. If wisdom is um, uh, the skill of living with intentionality, and if wisdom says that you don't trust your own heart and your own understanding, but you trust God, here's what you do in any situation in life. When you have a strong feeling, a really strong desire to do something, question it. That's not really popular to do in the world, right? And sometimes even Christians, we say, This is what we do. This is Christian decision making one on one. You feel good about something, what do you say? I have a peace about it. Here's me just throwing some water on that whole thing. Sometimes when you have a peace about it, maybe that's actually your sinful flesh wanting to lead you towards an easy decision, towards the decision of least resistance, towards a decision of fulfilling your own personal desires and your own personal pleasure. Don't get me wrong, I believe that God guides us in our decision makings to peace, but, but usually it's the harder decision. Usually it's the path of more resistance that Christ is leading us towards. Usually it's the path of sacrifice. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. So here in verses 5 and 6 we learn, trust, lean, acknowledge. The word for trust is, is communicated well in this word for lean. Real trust is, is blatantly laying down before God and trusting him. The, so the Old Testament, quick lesson here, Old Testament was written in Hebrew mostly. There were a, a little bit of the New Testament that was written in Aramaic. Most of it was written in Greek. So you have three languages, old, dead languages, that are used, those forms of them are dead, that were used to write the scriptures, okay? And Aramaic was one of them. That's the, the least known one. But Aramaic is really similar to Hebrew, in a sense. There's an Aramaic word for trust that's a picture. And this is the way that old languages used to do it, that new languages don't capture as much. There's beautiful word pictures within some of these ancient languages. And within the Aramaic language, there's the word for trust is a picture. And you know what the picture is? Face down prostrate. That's what trust is. So if I walk into a room with somebody I don't trust, how am I going to act? I'm going to be kind of on my guard a little bit. I'm going to be ready, because I don't know what that person's going to do. But if I walk into a, a room with somebody and want to communicate trust, there's no better way than to just lay down on the face and say, I have no defensives up. I'm completely at your mercy. I trust you with whatever. That's the path of following God. That's the path of trusting in the Lord. Completely dependent on him in all ways. Pastor Ray Ortland, in his sermon on this passage, gave three questions I thought I'd give to you. Three questions that help us discern the extent to which we truly trust the Lord. Number one, do you let the Bible overrule your thinking and practical decisions? Here's another way of asking it. Do you agree with the Bible or do you submit to the Bible? Here's how you agree with the Bible. I agree with the Bible that lust is a sin. I agree with the Bible that lust is destructive. I can agree with that and not submit to it. I can agree that the Bible says that and still continue to lust in my own heart and still continue to present images into my eyes that would allow me to fall down that path very, very quickly. But to submit to the Bible means I can't just say lust is bad, lust is sin. I actually have to respond to that truth and put myself under that truth and live in such a way as to not pursue lust, but to kill that sin within my own heart because that's what the Bible says. In the same way, I could agree that the Bible says it's better to be careful with your finances, it's better to work hard, and it's better, it's right, it's good to acknowledge that God actually owns everything and whatever I receive financially I should give back a portion to Christ's church, to God through his church, and I should be generous with it. I can agree with the Bible, and I can say, you're right, Bible, you're right, God, that is true, and I don't have to do it. But to submit to it, then I've got to actually live it out. Be generous. Be giving. Give to God and live sacrificially. So that's the question. Do you agree with the Bible or do you submit to it? Question number two. Do you believe? This is a question about do you trust God? Do you believe there's a path to God without Jesus? For you, for anyone. Do you believe that there's a path towards heaven, a path towards salvation? Do you believe that there's a path towards success in your own life that's not explicitly through the cross of Christ? Not explicitly through following Jesus? I had the privilege this week of um, of being with some area pastors, uh, meeting with a young missionary family. They've been on the field in Guatemala for a year, and they felt a call a couple of years ago to go to the unreached. They wanted to go to places where the gospel had not been preached, and then they got really, really frustrated, because all of a sudden, they also felt this call to go to Guatemala, and they're like, what are we doing in Guatemala? Guatemala. There's a whole bunch of Christians in Guatemala. There's access to the gospel in Guatemala. And then all of a sudden, while they're on a trip to Guatemala, thinking about where they might move there, they ask somebody, do you know of any areas in Guatemala where the gospel hasn't been preached? And this pastor, Guatemalan pastor, lived there his whole life, said, absolutely I do. If you go up in the mountains, there's no electricity, there's no running water. We can find villages where the gospel has not been preached. Or maybe the gospel was preached hundreds of years ago, and then the gospel got intermixed with ancient religions, and now they've completely lost the concept of what the gospel is. We will find unreached peoples in Guatemala. And they said, okay, sign us up. That's what God's doing. Do you believe so strongly? Do you trust God so strongly that you actually believe that it is only through Jesus that we can receive salvation? That's question number two. Number three, when was the last time this is, listen, this is, this is when it's fun. I didn't write these questions. This is, this is Ray Ortland. You can look him up. He's asking you this question, not me. When was the last time you took a risk to follow Jesus? Because if you don't remember, then maybe it's not trust. Maybe it's not the fully prostrate trust. Again, sitting with this family in Guatemala, the Cope family, they risked everything. They sold a business. They went. With limited support, they moved into an area right on the cusp of the mountains in which it wasn't a very luxurious place to live. They pulled their kids out of school, and they said, we're going to have to start over as a family, and we're going to risk, we're going to live in a dangerous area, we're going to take a truck that can barely make the roads up there, and and we're going to risk it all for the sake of following Jesus. We don't know where the support's going to come from we don't know who's going to respond and not going to respond we don't know what we're going to find when we get there but we're going to risk it to follow jesus that's a life of trust verses 8 and 9 or far, sorry verses 7 and 8 continue this theme of trust insane be not wise in your own eyes fear the lord and turn away from evil so i had you highlight the action words of Trust, lean, acknowledge. Next, turn away. Trust means repentance. To give up on your way of life and your answers and to trust Christ. Martin Luther would say, all of life is repentance. All of life is turning away from sin. Repentance, listen, I think I've said this before, we can never say it again. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance is a turn. Repentance is turn away from evil in verse 7. I'm sorry, says I did something wrong. I agree with you. Repentance means I'm going to now go in the opposite direction and turn away from it. Verses 9 and 10 honor. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here's a question Where's the hardest area of your life to trust the Lord? What Solomon gives us here, one hard area is going to be your wealth. One hard area to apply that difficult truth of trusting the Lord in all ways. In verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your children. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Those are probably the two hardest ways to trust the Lord. It's completely leave your children up to him and say, I trust you with them and to completely live in obedience and open-handed and say, God, I trust you with my wealth. I trust you with my resources, with the safety and security of my own life and my family long-term. But this is what God is calling, for the followers of God to be generous, to be giving, to use it to build his kingdom, use wealth to build his kingdom, because it's not really our wealth. Verse 11 and 12 give us sort of the difficult side of this, okay? Because we said our process of learning to trust God uh, starts with the peace that comes from God, continues into the trust that God asks of us, and then what happens when you're not trusting? What happens when you're falling off of the road? Then what might happen? Verse 11 and 12 is a warning. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Notice the most beautiful truth in verses 11 and 12. Is that God does bring discipline, but he brings discipline in what? In love. And so discipline comes to those that the Lord loves. Do you know what that means? Do you get the grandeur of all that God is saying to us here? He's not saying, if you start on this path of righteousness, if you receive Christ for salvation, he's not saying, if you mess up, then I'm going to be mad at you because you're going to end up on the wrong road. He's saying, if you mess up, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to love you back onto that path. And in fact, the, the most... The, the most unloving thing God can do is to leave us alone. To let us just deal with the consequences of our own actions. Discipline is love. I hope parents know that. I hope you recognize that. That if you don't love your children, then let them do whatever. But if you love them, then show them what right is and show them what wrong is and discipline them towards wisdom. Discipline them towards Faithfulness. Hebrews twelve eleven. All discipline, but rather, sorry, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather painful. Discipline doesn't, doesn't feel pleasant, it feels painful. But then what? But later on, discipline, Hebrews 12.11, yields the fruit of righteousness in peace for those who are trained by it. What does that tell us? It's the discipline of God that leads to peace, that leads to fruit. Because God loves us so much, he doesn't want to leave us alone on the path of wickedness. He wants to push us back towards the path of righteousness and the path of wisdom. God will discipline those he loves, but you know what he won't do? Punish those he loves. It's different. We have to make a firm distinction between discipline and correction and punishment and condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not punish, God does not condemn his children, except one. God did punish Jesus. God punished Jesus because of you. God punished Jesus because of me. So God doesn't condemn me because Jesus was punished for me. And it wouldn't make sense to have poured out his wrath on his son only to pour out his wrath on another son. God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he would not have to pour out his wrath on us. That's the gift we receive. And so when you mess up, he's not punishing you. But he may be disciplining you. He may be allowing you to to experience some negative consequences, some negative repercussions of your own destructive decisions, and that is for your good. Don't waste that crisis. Don't waste the crisis that comes when you recognize that you're on the wrong path, that you're not honoring God, and he allows a crisis to come your way, don't waste it. But turn and repent. This passage is chopped full of stuff to think about and talk about when we trust, when we lean, when we acknowledge, when we turn away and repent, and when we honor. When we see that God is giving us peace. God is calling us to trust and God is bringing discipline when we fall away from the path. But ultimately, the path of following God is a path defined by his goodness. So as the team comes up to lead us in one more song, I want to end us this way. Here's your call today. Receive peace. Receive peace only through the coming of Christ. Because if you acknowledge the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of Christ the Son on your behalf, you will receive the peace that can only come through Him. And as you receive that peace that comes from God, then in response, pursue trust. In which you acknowledge Him in all your ways. You lean on Him for your strength. You prostrate yourself before Him and say, I am not holding anything back. I'm not holding on to any of my own wisdom or my own understanding. I'm repenting. I'm repenting and turning away from everything I've done before and everything I've known before. And I'm choosing to honor you with it all. And then if disciplined, run. Not away from the discipline of the cross, but run to the discipline. Run to the cross in the discipline of Christ. Because discipline is scary. Discipline shakes us up. But never in discipline do we doubt that the God who has saved us continues to love us. So when you experience those crises, whether it is discipline that you're experiencing or whether it is just the craziness of the sinfulness in this broken world we live in, run to Jesus for healing. Run to him for his peace. Stand, sing with us this morning. give you peace.